mastering your emotions so you can be a safe space for the feminine mm, is yes. actually to me the art of masculinity so i would think it means two things to me one it's always like in the eye of the beholder so realize that it's okay to have a different view than somebody else two it's always being created and recreated uh i i think it means an openness to growth an openness to learning an openness to looking at what is masculinity in me and having curiosity about what parts are serving me and what parts maybe aren't serving me so well anymore. And so the art of masculinity is truly that. If you can master being a lion and a lamb, you've mastered masculinity. The art of masculinity to me means knowing how to gracefully dance between both the feminine flow and the structure of the masculine. This is The Art of Masculinity with your host, Johnny Elsassen. Hey everyone, today's guest is Joshua Wenner. He is an entrepreneur, veteran, filmmaker, and emotional resilience expert. He has spent the last 20 years growing companies, maximizing human potential as a master coach, and is the founder of Emotional Resilience Training, ERT, as well as the co-founder of K4 and Valor. His curriculum and frameworks are being used to help men, first responders, veterans, and medical professionals who deal with high stress and trauma to reintegrate back into life. Prior to his current work, Joshua was on an elite team of five of the top trainers and speakers to train Fortune 100 companies while working for Tony Robbins. Joshua is currently in his post-production of his film Grief to Grace, a personal story of how he turned the pain of his brother's loss into meaning and purpose, including interviews of 22 experts in the fields of grief and trauma. The film is expected to be released January 2023. This episode was absolutely amazing for all of my people out there who are really looking at transitioning out of out of these high octane jobs and into quote unquote normal life joshua has an immense experience with this and he has trained people extensively in how to do this effectively because it's one of the biggest things that affects us coming out of these high octane jobs is the reintegration back into normal life so joshua is just absolutely an amazing human being a great conversation with him definitely connected him right connected with him right off the bat as two veterans and just out here trying to do the best we can to support everybody that is resonating with our message and getting them into the right frame of mind so they can have successful and happy lives. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode and I will see you guys around the corner. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Art of Masculinity. Today we have Joshua Wenner on the podcast with us today. Josh, Joshua, you and I had a, a great time jamming out before, um, just connecting, man. And I just love where you come from. You're heart-centered. I love what you really have going on in the world today, helping men out there. And I can't wait for us to dive into it, but just wanted to extend so much gratitude for you being on the show and uh, happy to have you. How are you doing today, man? Thanks, brother. Yeah, I'm, I'm having a good day and uh, I really enjoy the work you're doing in the world as well. So excited to be here, excited to have a good time and I'm, I'm in a really good spot. So, you know, brother, it's really cool. Um, I, I don't know that there's many men out there that can lend their background 
to supporting people coming from high octane environments. And you really do that. And you're one of the people that I think you and I end up kind of lend ourselves to that world. So yeah. it's just going to be so much fun to have you on the show and jam out about that. Cause I think there's so much there to help people with, but they don't really find a lot of podcast hosts or people in the development space that they can relate to. Right. Yeah, I, I totally disagree. Or I totally agree. And I also believe when you have that warrior framework or, you know, you in high trauma type situations, it applies to everybody, but you, you see the really intense things and you get good at those. And so it, it, anything will still apply to anybody else that's listening to whatever we dive into, but those that may be in a high trauma-based career, either a veteran or a first responder or somebody that's had a lot of shit happen, um, they're going to probably really get some value out of this because it will relate directly to them in addition to anybody else who's listening. So it'll be- Yeah, fun. brother. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Well, before we get started, I'm going to kick you off with the manly round. You cool with that? Yeah. We get to get to show everybody what kind of man you are, Joshua. All right, let's go. All right. Your first question is what is your spirit animal and why? Mm. Spirit animal. I'd say at, at this moment, it's changed a number of times, but at this moment, it's a silverback gorilla and, uh, Actually, I was doing a ceremony with some buddies and for whatever reason, this kind of spirit animal came through me. It used to be more like a hawk or an eagle from looking out mm. and above. And then it's more shifted into, I'm doing much more embodiment work now and I'm much more integrated work. And so this, it actually came through in this medicine journey of like, I was in the ground and I almost became this archetypal energy of this gorilla. And it was the representation of like get in the fucking ground, get in the dirt. Like when you're, when you need to regulate, when you need to ground, like go outside ground into nature and get like, like if you look at these gorillas, they're in the ground, they're in mm -hmm. the dirt. So it was a, just a metaphor to like dig in, integrate and get really grounded and really rooted. So I'd say uh, I'm, I can be really gentle and really compassionate, really loving, but I can, I can drive into the hard shit and I can make shit happen. And silverbacks are just, they're just badasses. And they also, I think, can be really loving and compassionate and protect their tribe, but handle shit when it needs to be handled. Dude, that epitomizes what I know about you. So I love the silverback for you, bro. Thank I was you, like, as you said that, I was like, I probably couldn't envision a, a creature out there that, that you embody more. So that's really cool. The other thing is I want to, I want to touch on two things here. Um, one, it's so, isn't it so interesting when we do plant medicine, always it's an animal. Why, why do you think that is an animal always comes up with, with plant medicine? Yeah, it is really interesting. Um, I'm not quite sure. I just know we're connected to, I think we're more connected to the earth and I think we're connected to nature and uh, just studying in some of the native American um, elders and some of the work I've done over the years, it's really helped me connect with nature to look for the wisdom in nature. And so that's actually been a really good guiding post about 15 years ago, I was doing a lot of work with shamans and uh, native American tribes. And that's when I started to learn like, Oh, okay. They look for what is a, what does a hawk mean? And a hawk is a receiving signal versus an Eagle goes both ways. Or what does a mm. crow mean? And, you know, transformation or what does a frog mean? So seeing different, you know, signs in nature and then looking them up has been a really good practice, but yeah, it tends to come in, 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 uh, in plant medicine ceremonies in a large way. And just, I think, but I think it's cause we're connected to the plants and I think we're connected to nature and they can speak to us through, uh, through that, that archetypal nature. I think it's also, that's really great points. And I think it's also for some reason, 
um, because animals are so instinctual, there's nothing kind of premeditated with them that their actions, when they do things, we can say that's the kind of species they are. That's the habits they have, but it's based out of instinct, not premeditation. So there's some, there's some form of innocence to it. Right. And I think that when we can relate that as humans to that, to that innocence, we can see that there's something deeper in us that's kind of instinctually there. And I think we, we really feel like we want to resonate with that because we want to feel like there's a piece of us that doesn't have to always be thinking and always like have this, you know, consequence and receiving and everything else. I don't know. That's just like my mindset around it. I, I like that a lot. Yeah. Cause that was even this, uh, this last time when this happened, it even, I was with some buddies and we were hanging out and we were just in the yard walking around and literally I jumped down and like started acting out this, this, you know, gorilla energy. And it would literally like, it almost just dropped in and it was part of it was mm. play. A part of yeah. it was like play, run around, like, but I think, I think I really relate to that. I think there's an instinctual energy and it's like, get out of your head, get into your body mm. and embody this, embody this essence. And this is the medicine you need. And it changes. I find mine changes over time, depending on what I need and where I'm at. How about you? For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I find that too. And many people I've spoken with, uh, in plant medicine, they, they find that it changes as well. Recently, mine has been, um, mine was, uh, it's been the, the Puma has shown up mm. a lot in plant medicine for me. Yeah. Uh, and I used to think it was the Jaguar, but it became very clear uh. in recent times that it's been the Puma, which, you know, obviously different meanings for different cultures on, on both of those, you know, uh, animals. But yeah, mine's been the Puma recently. So it's, I'm interested to see as that evolves too, where that goes, but, uh, I'll be in some, I'll be in some medicine, uh, actually this week, uh, in oh. some Bufo. So we'll see Ooh. if anything comes out of that. Awesome. But, awesome. Yeah. And then the second question I had for you was, um, you mentioned you were more into integrative, uh, work these days. And I know we're still going through the manly round, but I want to elaborate for people because I think integration has been a big kind of hashtag recently, but I know you're an incredibly genuine person. So I wanted to have you shed some light on what that really means when we talk about integrative work. Mm, re really good question. So there's this concept of spiritual bypass and spiritual bypass is when we learn the language you know, we learn the metaphors, we learn the philosophy behind it, but mm -hmm. it's, it's hard fucking work doing the shadow work, doing the abyss work, facing yourself. We use a metaphor in K4 called, you know, you're initially fighting the dragon and, and, mm. you know, going to find the dragon in its lair, you're better off to go meet the dragon versus it coming to your village. So when you do the work to go find that dragon, it's hard. And, we want to run towards the exits, even no matter how strong we are, we, we tend to want to avoid it. And so we can have a tendency to spiritually bypass. And, uh, when we spiritually bypass, we skip doing the hard work and we almost go right to what the lessons should be. And it, it, mm -hmm. it leaves us feeling like we did the work, but we end up looping. And so for me, integrative work is willing to do the hard shit, willing to look at what's the secrets, what's the sneaky shit, what's the stuff we don't tell anybody. And can we look into those areas? Can we start to bring that into our allies, into our community and say, Hey, here's the shit that's, that I've been hiding. Here's the stuff that I've been sneaking around with. Here's the stuff that's messy or uncomfortable. I'm going to handle this and I'm going to look mm. at this area and I'm going to do the work on this and I'm going to stay committed. And I may fail a bunch of times, but I'm going to stay committed until I make peace with this area. And when you do it, there's a different 
I can feel it in men. Uh, there's a different visceral feeling you get when somebody's integrated and it, it is a deeper sense of trust. It's almost like a density. You can feel like, oh, they're speaking from integrated wisdom and mm. there's less of a lack to prove or to uh, bypass or any of the other stuff. Cause they're like, when you've done the work, you have deep compassion, you have immense respect for the process. Uh, and there's this patient energy, I guess, that comes with the integration work that you can feel in another man, at least I can really feel it. And so versus when somebody skips it, they may have all the language, but you don't necessarily trust what they're saying, or you don't mm -hmm. necessarily, there's a almost like it feels more head than, than integrated in the body. And so uh, to me, that's the integrative work is I'm, I've done work for a long time, but I spiritually bypassed for a long time. I would use the language and use the tools and think I was doing it, but I was kind of skipping some of the messy stuff or putting things in boxes like, I'll get to this later because I'll handle this now. And I'm in a period of my life now where I'm like, hey, what, what's the messiest shit and how do I keep going into it and making peace in that area? And so I'm, it's moving down. It's moving from here, very much mm -hmm. concepts, intellect, um, frameworks, control, things that I did to not feel essentially to control my emotion and my feeling. Cause I looked at that as wrong or negative or bad or messy. Part of it's our similar training and background of like handling mission. And you don't, you don't, that's the no go zone, right. was part mm -hmm. of that. But, um, so let me intellectualize it or let me skip it or let me bypass it or let me get back to mission. And the new, new practice that I'm at is like, Oh, how do I go into all those messy areas and make peace with them? So different, different level of awareness that I'm getting and different level of integration because I'm finally handling shit I put off for a long time, like an, a very literal example, a porn addiction that I didn't even know I had for a long time until I one day said, oh, I'm going to stop this for 30 days and couldn't mm. was like, what the fuck? Here's the, an area of my life. I can't, I say I'm going to do it and I don't. And then I would do accountability groups. I would do stuff and I would fail and I'd feel like an imposter. I was leading other guys through groups. They were getting breakthroughs and I was still failing. And so this was a thing that I was hiding because I didn't know how to handle it. And I kept mm -hmm. diving deeper into the work the last probably four and a half, five years. And to now that I'm in a whole nother place with it of finally going like, ah, I finally have this. That's one of my dragons that yeah. I'm learning how to ride versus moving from fighting this dragon that I've been fighting to riding the dragon and, and learning like, okay, this is my ally now, not necessarily my enemy. And so that, that I feel like is the deep integrative work and it shows up for each man very differently. Uh, but yeah. similar patterns, similar wounding, similar patterns, but different, different storyline. I love that. That was, it was very beautifully said. And number two, real time for everybody listening. This is like one of those moments that I'm having right now where like, I've never voiced that question to people about integrative work. And I've always kind of had the assumption of, of your philosophy on it. And hearing you say it makes me not feel crazy. Like, am I, am I thinking of it the wrong way? You know, and I tell guys this all the time. It's like, we don't speak up enough and talk about this to figure out we're not the only ones with that same thought process. And just hearing your process on what integrative work and what I, what I interpret integrative work to be, and for us to be aligned in that right now, just gave me that moment of, oh, okay, I'm not alone. So real time for everybody listening right now, that is what, um, you know, the power of speaking, speaking up and asking questions as well. So I love that brother. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, your next question is what song, whenever you hear it, no matter where you are, if you're surrounded by a million people, you just would have to start singing along with. Um, there's a, a great song. 
uh, what's the name of the song? It's 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 a it's like a house song, but it's it's that song that says like "World Hold On" is some of the mm. chorus. And just if I hear that song for some reason, that always lands really deeply in my heart. And I can't wherever I'm at, I get involved. Like I'm like, all right, here we go. <laughs> Either I that or that. Some, probably some Led Zeppelin songs, you know, some some classic rock. Sure. Yeah. 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 I love that, man. It's funny to always hear what, what guys like come up with when they just have to start singing along with it. Remember that old Hanson song, like Mbop and everybody made fun of Hanson and we all just like joked about it, but you're like, shit, every time it comes on, like you start singing with it and you're like, God, it's so embarrassing. Oh, it's so good. So good. Um, all right. Your, uh, last question. If you could pull a prank on anybody, they could be dead or alive, but they have to be somebody relatively well-known. So who majority of people would know if you could pull a prank on anybody, who would your prank be on? And it, only if you know it, what would the prank be? Man, that's a tough one. Um, difficult question. Hmm. total blank at this moment <laughs> i got nothing right now yeah that's all right no we'll, we'll put a pin in it we'll have to come back all to right. that one i'll have to shoot you a message and then put it on blast on instagram <laughs> or something oh <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah i love it but you know so going back to a little bit of what we were talking about and getting back into like integrative work and like what it even means to look at some of the things in our lives like trauma and things that have impacted us you know, where are you finding people, especially from very high octane, stressful, traumatic jobs, where are you finding the disconnect with them in, in a lot of your work? What, what's maybe a common theme that you're seeing in them where that's blocking them from really finding that happiness in their life? Yeah, great question. So, so I would say it's one of the, one of the questions I usually frame is uh, when I open to a group, as, as I might say, how many hours of training did you receive to disassociate from emotions and follow protocol? Mm. Wow. Right. So if you look at your career, how many hours from, <laughs> from boot camp, tech school, on the field training, how, how much are you repping? Like, hey, you're going to be on mission. Let's disassociate. Because what they know, and this is why it works so well, is under pressure, we revert to our highest level of training. And so what happens is our nervous systems take over. They move into a, a fight, flight, freeze, or peace survival response. And so if we don't consistently rep, essentially putting people in high stress situations and then repping the protocol to follow, what happens is we fall to whatever our natural instincts are, which, mm -hmm. which is survival states. So in high trauma careers, you're constantly put under high stress through all the training that you get so that your nervous system is gonna be highly reactive and then in those states, you get conditioned on what to do, how to think really quickly to follow protocol, to handle mission so that you can actually succeed, stay alive, keep patients alive, right? To do your mission. And so you're many times receiving a lifetime of training to disassociate again from emotions. Cause let's, let's face it. If you were deployed during battle, if you are a doctor on the operating table, if you are a police officer on every single call that shows up or a firefighter or you know, uh, somebody in a high trauma field, if you actually felt what was happening, you, you wouldn't be able to do your job effectively. So the training is highly effective to disassociate, handle the mission, 
And then it's usually said like, we'll get to that later. But mm. what was missed is there never was a later. And so the second question I ask is, in order to actually feel your body, like to know what's going on with you, do you have to reconnect and reintegrate and actually feel what's going on in your body to connect with yourself? One, two, what about a spouse? Like if in order mm -hmm. to actually connect and feel your spouse or your kids, do you have to be connected? So you're in your heart, you're compassionate, you're empathetic, you're actually knowing what's going on. So do you have to be connected to yourself and your emotions for your spouse, your kids, yourself? Question is, yes. And then mm -hmm. my last question is, how many hours of training did you receive to get back into your emotions and learn a set of tools to navigate this? And mm. typically, as I start the training in the first couple of minutes, it's like, ah, three minutes. <laughs> That's how much training <laughs> I've received. So, so the, the core problem is, is a lifetime of training to do your job effectively and zero training to reintegrate back. And so, mm. so that's the gap that's missing. And because of that gap, that's why we're having all these symptoms. And so to try to try to simplify this, we're essentially living in these, as you framed it, high octane, high stressful situations that aren't just physically stressful, but emotionally stressful. And we learn to function in these high environments and the way the nervous system adapts to that is we become hypervigilant. Um, we become almost like highly in this alertive state so that you can actually do your job and it's highly effective for the job. <laughs> However, um, without learning how to re-regulate your nervous system and actually come back down, which is what they would call like a parasympathetic state or rest and digest, feed and breed, all the other parts of life, um, you live in these high stressful states. And then what happens is the body starts to regulate itself. And the way that it does it is by breaking down, right? So essentially mm. it's unawareness. If I had to simplify one thing, it's the unawareness of the nervous system and how it functions in the state that we've been living in and how to reintegrate back and forth from, let's call it a sympathetic state or a state that is hypervigilant to do your job, high stress. And then a, a regulated state, which allows you to come back to life, get back in your heart, develop compassion, empathy, um, you know, rational thought, executive functioning. And so we end up living in these parts of our brain that are essentially a high trauma response. And then to cope, the body is brilliant. It finds a way to regulate itself. So what, ed what ends up happening is think of it as we're almost stuck on high, on hypervigilant. So what would happen if you're living at high states for long periods of time? Do you think that you'd try to bring yourself down, right? Like, it, would you think the body would say, hey, we're, we're running on red line way too long. How do, we, how do we cool the engine? And so what could that look like? That could look like um, drugs, alcohol, food, um, all these different things that try to bring us down. Even exercise sometimes can, can do those things. Yeah. Or... We run for too long and then we basically blow out our cortisol receptors and then we crash. And if mm. we're used to living in a hypervigilant state, like if there's a diagram and let's say the middle zone's resilient, we're trained to live up, up on the very top of that scale. And we think this is normal, but we're actually in a hypervigilant state. The resilient zone's the middle ground, which feels boring and almost bleak. Well, when you crash, your cortisol burns and you actually hit the bottom of that. And when you hit the bottom, that feels like almost like death. And so that's when depression kicks in. Um, and what do you think we try to do when we hit that, that level? Other symptoms of somebody going from zero to 60 like that, their cortisol depleted, sugar cravings, carb cravings, like there's a whole number of symptoms. So we try to get back up. And that's where 
what would actually get your heart beating to take you back up again? High risk behavior, very common yeah. amongst right high octane people. Um, in addition to any type of other drugs, workaholism, there's a whole race of emotions. So the core problem is we just don't know how to manage our nervous systems. And instead of being like, oh, let me get highly aware of my nervous system when I'm in different states and how to flip the switch to move me into more of a regulated state, we end up just thinking this is normal. And we try to protect the people around us from the things we've seen or what we've taken on. And then what ends up happening is we end up blowing a gasket because we're living in these states too long. And that's what starts to cripple us with addictions, mental health problems, suicide, all these things come from just living in these states for too long where the body can't process it. And so it ends up, it's like, a, it's like an engine. Think of if we never knew how to check the gas gauge or the check engine light, eventually the engine would cease. And that's what's happening, mm -hmm. essentially the engine seizing, and then we move into shame. So that's, that's essentially the core problem. If it makes sense from a, a nervous system positioning. Yeah, there's a couple there's, it's very, very eye opening, and I know it because I have lived it and then seen other people go through that process. Um, but for people that maybe haven't been there before, or unaware that they're going through it, there's a couple of questions I have. So the first one being, you know, you and I know very alpha men and very alpha people in this life. And if you tell them, hey, step out of hypervigilance, they're going to be like, well, that's when opportunity arises for you to be taken advantage of. Mm -hmm. So how do we get those people to realize that hypervigilance is actually going to, yes, it's great for the environments we lived in, but it's not necessarily great for the everyday life. How do we get them to see in a roundabout way that you can still be a protector and a provider, or you can be somebody who um, is aware of their surroundings, but you don't have to be redlining all the time? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I actually think of it, I'm sp sp thinking of a specific example. There was uh, a veteran that I work with that I know closely uh, who was in intelligence and um, again, deployed multiple deployments and um, his wife, just to give you an example. So the cliff notes are family, right? If you want to yeah. connect, if you want to connect and have a relationship with your spouse and your kids, you need yeah. to be able to reintegrate and actually connect with them. And um that is the goal. The reason, why are you serving in the first place? Are you serving mm. just to serve and be a lone wolf, a lone, lone person by yourself living like some of the movies show all the superheroes that are by themselves? Or are you actually wanting to take the vitality and actually bring it back to your home, to your family, to your kids, to your community, right? We, like we, a vital man revitalizes or a vital man and woman. If we're not vital, we can't revitalize. And so part of that revitalization comes from being knowing how to reintegrate into different states and different environments. And so it's, it's not survival of the fittest. And I think that's where that old mindset goes to is our training is whoever's the fittest, whoever's the most, what we believed, what I used to believe was resilient was how quickly can I get back up and put everything in a box and go back to mission. I thought that was resilient mm. until one day I woke up and realized I was an empty shell walking through the world numb, essentially because I'd cut off myself from all my emotions. And this example of this man, him and his spouse were like, they had four kids. They're at the edge of like divorce because she's in extreme. So when you're deployed, you're experiencing the symptoms, but your spouse is also experiencing those symptoms. And so yep. when we try to come back home, we're now trying to protect them from what we saw. In addition, they have all this uh, PTSD and other, other symptoms. So where she was saying, I need to connect with you. I need to express some emotions. He literally was like, 
the metaphor he used with me is like, she's drowning. And what am I supposed to do? Jump it in the water and drown with her? So literally mm. his metaphor was emotions equal death equal drowning because that was the framework he, in the field. If I get into my emotions, I die on the battlefield. I, I literally die. So I, this is a no-go zone. I literally have to stay hypervigilant and present, protect the guys in the left and right, handle missions so we get through this. Again, very uh, needed in the, in the field. However, at home, that doesn't work to connect with anybody. It doesn't work to do. So, so what ends up happening is we need to be able to say, hey, how do I reintegrate? How do I reintegrate for the job, whatever that looks like for, to be on mission? And then how do I come home again? And if you work a career where you're still going, you know, like fire, police, a lot of different roles, you need to do this daily. If you've been deployed, then you need to have a process that you come back home again and you reintegrate with the family. And that gets you back into the body, gets you back into what you're doing. And I, I like to use this frame for that, that type of archetype you described. What's harder? Is it harder to disassociate and not even pay attention to emotions? So your emotions are actually driving you because chances are you probably get angry. If you're that type of man you described, and I know it well, you probably get really angry and you can't control your anger and do things that you're not proud of. So are you in control? Are you actually protecting the house? Or do you become sometimes the, there's a great uh, quote by Nietzsche that talks about if we fight monsters for long enough, we become the monster. And so mm -hmm. you have to be really careful when you're in that state at some level, you lose a part of your soul, you lose a part of your humanity. And sometimes what we have to do and sometimes what we see. So it's really important that we have to come back, reintegrate and get our soul back. We have to get those parts of ourselves that we lost. And there's a lot of research-based uh, resiliency tools that it takes to do that, but it's going to require dealing with these messy things called emotions. And nah. there's a way to learn to master those where instead of it being looked at as a weakness, you can still be hypervigilant or not necessarily hypervigilant. You could be, still be highly aware but I would suggest you can actually move quicker because when you're in a hypervigilant state, you are so reactive, there's not time to look at options. And so mm -hmm. when something in the field may have been a threat, you needed to handle it, but at home, it may not be a threat. And you're reacting to this thing as a threat. If you can be able to reintegrate, check in and actually take charge of your nervous system instead of being in that fight or flight vigilant state, get into your heart, take some breaths. It may be something that requires a totally different skill set to protect the house, but you have to be connected to your heart. You got to be connected to compassion. You got to be connected to empathy because what may be perceived as a threat isn't actually a threat. It's, it's something coming back from when you were deployed on the job on duty that your nervous system is linked up as a threat, but at home, it's not a threat. And if you can't, if you can't master your nervous system, you can't turn the switch off then you're stuck on the field of battle at home and your home becomes a war ground. And if mm. you can flip the switch, you're now actually able to protect and provide because the greatest form of protection and providing may be your heart, maybe being present with your son or your daughter and just being there with them for a little bit as they're, um, let me give you an example. Let's say your wife has a really, you know, wife, son, daughter has a really tough emotional day and what they actually need from you is to just be there for them and, and walk with them through that. And there isn't a fix. There isn't a solution. It's just like, Hey, I just need you to see me, feel me, like be here with me. If you're in that state, there's no room for emotion. So they're going to feel, uh, they're going to feel inadequate. They're going to feel abandoned. They're going to feel distant, disconnected from you. 
And you think you're being strong and protecting the family, but what the family needed was your heart, your presence, your compassion, your empathy. That's what would have protected the family unit so that you're not, you're not bringing the trauma into your family unit. So I think that's the full circle switches. Can you actually leave things on the battlefield or whatever that looks like for a high octane career? And is there a transitionary period where you offload this so that by the time you can come home, you're now fully present, you know, and have the whole family unit in practices together? Because if you've taken on trauma, your family took on trauma. So you guys got to do it together. And one last thing, because I've been a little rant. I love it, brother. <laughs> Chances are the same things you struggle with, your kids and your spouse and everybody else is going to struggle with. So by you learning to adapt and master these skill sets, you now learn to lead your family into these tool sets. And so um, most high octane trauma professionals have high, there's a strong correlation, 60 to 70% have high childhood trauma. It's actually the same as prisons. So we look wow. at the prison system and we look at those that serve, uh, same careers, same high trauma, 60 to 70% of high trauma in childhoods, we just dealt with it differently. And so chances are that's the hypervigilance that's coming out. And so that's, that's kind of the full circle. So the, the question I like to say is, is it easier or harder to do the work, to feel your emotions, start to get a handle on your anger, start to get a handle on whatever's showing up where you're sabotaging or destroying things, you're gonna have to learn these tool sets and it's fucking hard. And so mm. men do hard shit. So, so is, it's much easier to go, ah, I'll deal with it later. Or, hey, focus on mission. That's actually easy. Once you learn how to do it really well, it's actually much harder to go, oh, I got to sit in these messy emotions. I got to be here with somebody while they're floundering or like he would say drowning. I actually have to sit in this. So men do hard shit. What's harder? And so I would invite those men to say, am I willing to do the hard shit that's going to actually connect me with my family, allow me to be there with my family instead of still be on mission, even if I'm sitting at home? Dude, you just dropped some like crazy bombs in there that honestly, I just want to hang up the podcast right now because I think you just, you, you fucking gut punched a lot of dudes out there, man. Um, and I think that the realization with the, some of the things you said, a couple of key things that I love that you said was one, you know, men looking at their families as threats, that's a punch in the stomach. You know, you, you come home and you do all this hard work and whatever it is protecting and serving as a police officer or firefighter or military you come home and you tell me I'm looking at my family as a threat. Like that's a punch in the stomach for me because those are the people that should feel the safest around me. And I think one of the, the other underlying pieces there is that you're not allowing them to feel safe around you because you're looking at them as a threat, which I think that's a, that's a beautiful piece to, to what you're saying. And then the, uh, the other thing is just being realizing that you, you actually did go through trauma, whether you, you believe that or not, your subconscious may have registered it as trauma, but your family experienced that too. And having that empathy, which is empathy, not having empathy is devoid of emotion. And so you're, you're not having that experience with them and being able to pass, pass through that or allow them to even pass through it. Cause you can't deal with it. I think those are just right there, man, are just two key pieces that just stomach punch anybody out there that's in these jobs thinking that they're doing hard stuff and living this hard life. But the hard piece is really coming to terms with those emotions and that trauma. So beautifully said, brother. And um, so branching off of that, 
one of the things that I, I'd love for you to dive into a little bit is, is uh, well, I have two things, but I want to start you off with one. The first one is how do we come to terms with the fact that we may have experienced or we did experience, in fact, trauma, because that's a, it's a dirty word for us. We're like, that, that's weak. Oh, we got trauma. No, that's weak. Fuck that. I'm, I'm a man. I, I can do hard shit. I don't have trauma. How do, how do we just come to terms with that simple fact? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. And, and I actually get asked this quite a bit because there's a whole movement of like different philosophies on, you know, strong man, weak man, and that whole dialogue. And a lot of this trauma has become a household name where everybody says yeah. they have trauma. So there's a, there's definitely some stigma around this. However, the definition I really like is there's a definition of trauma is trauma is the body's reaction to either a real or a perceived threat to either your physical or your emotional well-being. And so what I like to look at that as is like, um, let's say I was a child, let's even go back before whatever job I did. Let's say I was a child and I was at home and I got left all the time and I was abandoned and I was sitting there on my own. Do you think my body may interpret that as a threat to either my physical or my emotional well-being? I'd say, yeah, I'm, I'm, how did, and how did I respond or react to that? That may have been where I went, fuck emotion. I don't want to feel this. I'm going to become a doer. I'm going to go help everybody else. I'm going to become an achiever. I'm going to find something to keep busy so I don't have to feel this emotional state. And so there's two types of trauma. There's big T trauma and big T trauma is the things we all are very familiar with that we, I think we associate with trauma and there's little T trauma. Uh, little T trauma is an example, like I shared, where people wouldn't normally think, oh, that's trauma. But uh, the way I like to look at trauma is a very compassionate way. I'm a big fan of Gabor Mate. And a lot of the things that we do in life that I guess you could call make us human, but the things we can't figure out like, hey, why do I, I'm a good man. Why do I blow up on the people I love? Or I'm a good man. How come I become a pleaser? Or how, like, why do I, or how do I always you know, sabotage the things that I love the most, the things we can't quite figure out. What if, let's just use the word trauma, there was some sort of an experience that happened in your past, either recent past, childhood past, but that, that thing that happened was essentially triggering you and putting you into this hypervigilant state where you experience threat and your whole body and nervous system moves into reaction based on that potential threat, but it's actually not a threat. And, and, mm. and so that's how I like to look at trauma is I'll, I'll use a very personal example, uh, my porn addiction, right. Mm. Or my sex addiction, or where did all that come from? Right. Yeah. Um, and when I actually tracked it, I didn't necessarily say I have this big T trauma, but when I started to look at some of the little T trauma and say, Hey, I'm going to, cause for years I just said, nah, not a big deal, not a big deal, not a big deal. But then I would loop the patterns. So mm -hmm. what I would say is if you notice there's a looping pattern, it's you, not, not whoever you think it is looping to you. So taking responsibility for responsibility, there's no villains, there's no victims, there's no saviors. So if, you're, if you get busy saving everybody, it's a trauma response is, is how I look at it. If you get busy playing victim, trauma response. If you get busy blaming everybody, they're just ways of avoiding responsibility. So how do we move mm. into full ownership? Like, hey, there's no villains, there's no victims, there's no saviors. And, and then from that, now I can say, I have control to handle this. What's something from my past that I've linked up that's was a threat as a child, but is not a threat anymore as an adult. 
And mm-hmm. if I can track that, I can understand, Hey, the little child in me, or when I was on, on the battlefield, that part of me experienced that as trauma based on the situation, the environment, and my body linked it up, not my conscious mind, but my body literally said, Oh, you know, you touch the, the hot stove, you get burned. Don't do that again. Or I need to move into survival. So there's a link, there's a bias in my brain that's connected to an emotion that says, stay away from burning the stove. And um, so if I can, if I can explore that within myself and make peace with that part of myself and learn to identify like, Oh, what is the trigger? What are the things that trick that put that off? Or when do I get into that reactive state? I can now start to use resiliency protocol to say, ah, let me, let me put myself into a, a regulated state instead of an activated state. And let me start to, let me start to say what is a, a threat and what is not a threat. So, mm. so, so I think the big picture conversation is if there's an area of life that you're still struggling with, that you can't quite figure out why, uh, most of us in warrior culture would rather sever than solve. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so that's why most end up in the triple D divorce, drunk, disabled. No, and so wow, yeah. that's a very common thing. And, and why is that? is because we're trying to protect. We actually are coming from a place of service to try to protect the people we love. And so we, we try to bury it and handle it on our own, but you can't do it on your own. So, so there's just some core practices of like needing community, super important to have a vital community around, right? Um, yeah. Resiliency protocol for me has become a survival protocol. Not like this, this would be nice, but like, if I do this, I'm, I'm functioning in the world. I, I live at a high state. I have a lot of capacity. If I don't, those old patterns will come back. The tracking comes back and I yep. flounder back into it. So I think the full circle conversation is um, trauma, just to the way I'm looking at it, is just something your body's linked up as a threat that may not be a threat anymore. And how do you start to develop the self-awareness so that you can interrupt that if it's actually not a threat, right? So mm-hmm. somebody coming home at the end of a day and their spouse I'll give you one specific example. Their spouse would be obsessively cleaning. And this man was like, where's she at? Why? And we'd get angry and fight. He would move into a fight response because he's a fighter. So he would actually pick a conflict. Like, where are you at? Why aren't you giving me a, t-? like, what's going on? Instead yeah. of going, okay, let me take a break. Let me do my resiliency protocol. Let me get grounded into my heart because he had some trauma from childhood of feeling abandoned, feeling dismissed that was getting triggered. And so he was reacting in a survival state to how he reacted in childhood in a fight response. So if mm-hmm. he could identify like, ah, gauge of the truck, right? Engine light just popped on, the, the gas light popped on. Oh wait, I'm seeing the symptom that shows that I'm in a vig- hypervigilant state. I can now do practices to regulate myself, get grounded, get back into compassion, empathy and go, ah, what else could this mean? I'm an adult now. I can actually decide this isn't trauma as a child as an adult, ah, oh, this, she just had a bad day. Oh, mm-hmm. like maybe I need to check and say, Hey, what's going on? Do you have a bad day? You need to talk about it. And, and, and just that example is an example of how doing this type of work to investigate what could be looked at as a trauma. Um, it's not compared to society. It's just what's linked up in your nervous system as trauma. Right. So does that, mm-hmm. does that help kind of ground that as like, and, and again, think of it as trauma, the body's reacting, our whole basis of our body is to keep us alive, survival state. So something that the body links up is, is trauma, it's going to override to protect us and keep us safe. 
However, mm. those, those things that we were endangered on might not, may not be danger anymore. And that's the process of investigation to rewire that almost like rewire the nervous system. Yeah. And I think that's really beautiful in a couple different ways. And one was the fact that you're declaring that ownership's got to be one of the, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that's got to be one of the first pieces, right? Is, is yep. taking that ownership. Um, when you, when you discover there's some kind of issue or trigger in those moments. And then the other piece to that is, is having the awareness to be inquisitive. Um, and I think that is a beautiful piece because being able to ask the questions to yourself will help you divulge the answers. And then in a lot of cases, because I find that I do this in my life more so now, obviously I didn't, um, before I got into this work myself, but now I start to be more inquisitive about my thoughts and reactions, as opposed to saying something to somebody first. Mm -hmm. And in that I end up developing either an answer of why I'm feeling a certain way. So maybe it does stem back to something in my past, or if I'm making a certain judgment about that person's actions, where now I'm projecting it on myself, even though it has nothing to do with me, but it's putting me back into, like you said, back into that battlefield, because I'm creating an interpretation of those actions, and then putting that into my own brain and putting that into my own emotions. And so I love that you, you really answered those two pieces there for people, because I think that is the clarity that a lot of people need when they're trying to even ascertain if trauma, if, or what the trauma is in their life that's coming up. And, and it helps us to really explore the fact that it's okay that we have trauma. And, and I love that you said it's like a household thing today. Um, cause it is. And, and I think like, you, I think it's part of that spiritual bypassing. It becomes something that people yeah. just talk about and like, Oh, here's the mirror, right? Like, what is it in you that you see in me that you're project? Like, I hate that shit because it doesn't help people really get to the root of what's going on. And, and it doesn't let us really explore um, what that trauma is in our lives. It's it just like you said, it's just pushing it back and hiding it again. Um, and it, so, and, and one more piece yeah, on ahead. that, it's, it's not an excuse either. And I think that's the part, I think a lot of people use it as an excuse to not take ownership is the part that mm. you're hitting. And I think that's the part that irritates a lot of men. Like, really? You're yeah. just fucking lazy. It's not that you have <laughs> trauma. You're just lazy and don't want to do the work. So go, go do the work. So there is an element that that can become almost like the villain or, the, mm. or a reason for being a victim. And so it even happens. I see it in the, in the veteran community sometimes because they've had so much shit happen. They get attached to the identity of the story and then they actually don't take ownership to get out of it because so, so there's a, it is a messy, it is a really messy field where that trauma can actually become your identity. And that's when it gets a little dangerous because it's hard yeah. to get out of that. So yeah, it's, it's, I think on either side of that can be messy where, Somebody yeah. makes it their story or, or of like why they don't engage with the world or they get lost in it too. Right. Or they avoid it Yeah. either side, avoiding it or making it your focus story. Either of those can throw you off where it's just like a, it's just the practice of continual awareness and expansion and kind of going like, Oh, if a pattern shows up that I'm noticing, how do I start to take inventory and start to, like you said, become really curious, take ownership, and then start to start to move with that. Right. And start to get really adaptable. Yeah. And, you know, as we're kind of rounding out here, because man, I, I like, I just feel like we started the episode and I'm just like, holy crap. Um, but as we're kind of rounding out here, what is maybe like two tools that you give to men in the world or give to people who are coming to you for support? What are maybe two tools that, that have seemed to resonate for most 
or and apply to most situations that you can give to the listeners out there that may be going through something like this right now? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you one that's a primary tool. And, and I'd say this tool, it can be wrapped every single day and it's super important. Okay. So, um, and this tool is a tool that I created for the nervous system. And we've been talking a lot about the nervous system. So anybody listening, you can yeah. use this today. So when would you use CPR on someone? Well, like, when, uh, like, are they unconscious? I was going to say new. Are they? Uh, yeah, they'd be unconscious. Right. So, so, so think of when we notice either ourselves or somebody we love in a highly activated state or a, a, like a fight or flight state. Um, this is when you'd use the tool because we're literally offline. We're in a, such a reactive state. We don't know what we're doing. They don't know what we're doing. And I use this example, like, is it ever a fight about the dishes? No, it's somebody's, no. somebody's offline. And because they're offline, we go offline and now we're fighting and it makes no sense because it doesn't make any sense. It's the body, the nervous systems are in a survival protocol. So anytime you see this happen, either with you or somebody else, you use CPR and the C stands for conscious awareness. So the conscious awareness is like the recognition, either addictions, tyrant behavior, sadist behavior, which means we just want to hurt others, masochism, which means we're, we're hurting ourselves, um, isolation, addictions, depression, any of these things could be a trauma sign. Uh, when we notice we're there, see conscious awareness. Oh, wait, I, I see it. I'm here. I'm in this reactive behavior. The P stands for pause, like literally take a tactical pause, take a timeout, say, hey, I need to use the restroom. Let me call you right back. Find a way to take a tactical pause and just stop for a minute. And then the R is regulate. And what the regulate does is it actually moves you from this activated state to a calm and regulated state. And I'll give you, there's five primary ways to regulate just so that people have actual solutions. And all this, if you, anybody wants to do research is learning how to access your vagus nerve. Your vagus nerve is the main switch to put you into that parasympathetic or relaxed or regulated nervous system state. And the five ways are one, um, physical contact. So again, this is why service dogs work, equestrian therapy, get a massage, find, you know, go for a walk with your dog and spend a couple minutes walking, petting your dog. That's going to help regulate you because our, our amygdalas regulate the part of our brain that's co-regulating together. Uh, the second area is breath. Uh, one of the ones that's the most research is four, six breathing. So you breathe in for a count of four and you breathe out for a count of six. The key here is longer exhales than inhales. And it takes about six minutes. So 36 breaths or six minutes of four, six breathing is the second way to do this. Third way is cold immersion. So go take a cold shower, uh, do a cold plunge. Uh, if you can't do those, at least splash cold water in your face two or three times. And what does it do when you hit cold water? You're like, <sighs> you're getting back in your body out of this fight or flight head mindset and back into your body. So the third one's cold. Fourth is exercise. That's why jujitsu is such uh, a really good tool for a lot of veterans, fire, police, everybody, everybody's really loving it because you're getting physical contact and you're also doing exercise to regulate. And then the fifth way is vocal. This is where primal screaming, uh, humming, chanting, find a way to get in your vocal cords. And what mm -hmm. these all do is they actually access your vagus nerve and your vagus nerve. It's the longest nerve in your body. It's like a tree. And if you can access it, it's literally like the manual switch to take you from a sympathetic state to a regulated state. So CPR, oh, wow. conscious awareness, pause, and then regulate. And ideally you bring this into your family unit and you're able to call pauses together. Everybody regulates together, like make it fun, make it a game. 
And that's where a lot of guys and men have a lot of success when they can start to practice this as a family. Dude, that is such powerful. Again, dude, just uh, you, this is riddled with so much good content uh, for everybody. And that is just a very powerful, like kind of summation of everything that we've talked about. And I love that you mentioned bringing that into the family unit because God, dude, I can, it's just so important when you guys are on the same page and yes, we're going to get into these default systems, but when you're on the same page, somebody can, can sit there and bring you back to these protocols that really help you guys be constructive and communicative instead of deteriorating the fabric of the family or, or deteriorating back into, you know, old patterns. So Oh, brother. So good. So good. Well, man, Joshua, this has been such a, a fun episode, man. I, I love jamming out with you. You and I actually, this is the second time we've had a long conversation and it just always flows so well. I truly appreciate you. And I want you to let everybody know, um, where they can find you, how they can support you. And then what do you have going on? Cause you've got some great programs that you have out there for people to tap into. So where, where can they get involved and what is it that you have that they can tap into? Thanks, brother. Yeah, um, my website's Joshua Michael Wenner, W-E-N-N-E-R. It's also my Instagram. And then the programs, I have a men's community called K4. About half of that group is veteran first responders. Um, and so you can just go to K4 Men if you want more information on that. About every three times a year, we run a cohort of guys um, that go through this 13-week process together called the Rite of Passage. Um, and then we have Valor Resiliency. Valor is our, is our programs dedicated to veteran first responders. We're about to kick off and then sometime in the next couple of months, a train the trainer program. So people can bring this back to their fire department, police department, hospital system, school system. So that'll be coming very soon. Um, but Valor Resiliency, you can go there to find information. And then um, my film I've been doing, I've been documenting my whole process for the last decade and I'm in the last four months of getting that out. So um, that'll be updated on my website soon, but I'll be launching that to teach people these same tools. And then there's just uh, ERT method and ERT method is if anybody actually wants, I have a trauma toolbox where I actually have a lot of these breathwork strategies. And as well as you want to learn the basic frameworks and teachings, you can go there. And I love been, it, brother. And yeah, yeah and it's just ahead. been, it's just fun, man. I really enjoy hanging with you and rapping with you. And so thanks for having me as a guest on here. It's been a lot of fun. Absolutely, brother. Anytime, man. We'll have to have you back on. And to everybody listening, make sure you check out the show notes. We're going to link all this stuff uh, back to Joshua's programs, back to his website. So you guys can check it all out there. If you want to take part in it, I highly recommend it. Obviously, one of the one of the genuine dudes out there right now really trying to help people. So truly appreciate you, brother. And before I let you get on your way today, what does the art of masculinity mean to you? Hmm. I love that. I, I think it's an art because uh, there isn't one way to be a man. Um, there's many flavors of masculinity. And so the art is how do you take the collection of all the influences of the different men that we respect and are inspired by? And how do you integrate those all into you as a man? And how do you, how does your art be? What's your most authentic self and how do you express that is the art. So I love it. Mm. Beautifully said, brother. I love that as well. Well, thank you, Joshua. I appreciate you so much. And to everybody listening, as always, remember to drop the ego and stay humble. Until next time, guys. Bye.